This week, will it be Prime Minister Johnson or Prime Minister Hunt? And what might it mean for agriculture? Whatever one of them becomes the next Prime Minister needs to really understand that they, they, they need to have a long-term vision for for agriculture, for the rural areas and for the wider economy. George Dunn joins me from the TFA in a moment. Plus, a call for a radical rethink in how we farm to tackle climate change. People want to buy safe healthy food and they want to support British farming and they want to support their local producers. We'll hear from the report's author and meet the farmers already trying to achieve its aims. You can see behind us we've got rows of trees. The te- when, once those trees are fully established the temperature between the rows might be three, four, five degrees higher than it would be without them. So you can imagine that will extend the season for crops. The week in agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. We'll know on Tuesday who will be our next Prime Minister. Either Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt will be confirmed as the next leader of the Conservative Party, replacing Theresa May at number 10 the following day after her final Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. It could mean, depending how quick the new PM acts, we'll have a new government and new DEFRA team in place by the time we speak next on the programme next week. So what might it all mean for agriculture? George Dunn is Chief Executive at the Tenant Farmers Association, the TFA. What are members saying to you about the ongoing uncertainty over Brexit, George? Yeah, we've got members who will sit on both sides of the argument. So on any day I could have members who are calling me to say look why haven't we left yet why haven't we just gone on to this brave new world that we're being promised and and get on with just uh, uh, finding our way forward as a as an independent nation and this, you know I will have other members who are literally in tears saying my business is finished if 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 we get a no deal and if we don't have support going forward it's very very serious for us as as a as, as a business so Managing that in a membership organisation is quite difficult when you've got two very different views being expressed. Um, So we're trying to work with the government as much as we possibly can to ensure that uh, the aspirations of those go-getters who want to, you know, want, want to take advantage of the of the future. Um, is done in a sensible way so that those people who need a bit of help and support and assistance to to see a future for themselves are also protected going forward. So uh, we do think that a no-deal Brexit would not be great for the agricultural industry uh, and and we need to put in place sensible uh, structures around which how we are going to trade with Europe and the rest of the world and we need to make sure that we're not allowing stuff to be brought into our country which would be illegal to produce here and undermine our, our own markets and our own standards. So there's lots yet to, to, to happen and yeah, three years have, has passed and we are apparently no further forward and the autumn, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen in terms of uh, the next Prime Minister and whether or not we will be in a general election situation before the end of the year. So there's still lots of uncertainty. Uh, that uncertainty is just continuing, isn't it? And that, that's not good for anybody. No, uh, the, I mean, obviously uh, you can never predict the future, but when we are in, in a position where we don't even know whether we're going to have a government with a majority going forward, and let's say we do have a general election, the way the polls are stacked at the moment, we could have some very odd results across the country, uh, and the House of Commons may be more split than it is now. Um, obviously, if the Labour Party comes out with a more Remain type of agenda, that might make things uh, 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 more more interesting from from the Remain perspective. But uh, but certainly, the the amount of uncertainty that there is, and the and the, the length of time that that uncertainty has been in place, uh, is a real problem. And a Prime Minister Boris Johnson, do, do, would the TFA welcome that? Um, 
we would just welcome some stability and we would welcome some long-term vision um, uh, and we would say to both of the candidates Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt um, you need to look beyond the 31st of October and give us a clear view as to what the way ahead is so uh, we're not holding a candle for either of the individuals but whatever one of them becomes the next Prime Minister needs to really understand that they, they, they need to have a long-term vision for, for agriculture, for the rural areas and for the wider economy. And that's it, isn't it? I guess you'd like to, whoever the Prime Minister is, whoever the next DEFRA Secretary is, you'd like to get in there and talk more about not just Brexit but the other issues that's, that's affecting the TFA. Exactly, and there are plenty of issues, and we're, we've just finished a major consultation on our cultural tenancy reform, which closed on the 2nd of July, the first major consultation on agricultural tenancies for 25 years since we had the 1995 Agricultural Tenancies Act in place. So um, there's really important work to do in the tenancy sector, particularly for farm business tenancies, where uh, the average length of term is four years, 85% of tenancies are let for five years or less, clauses are restrictive and rents are too high. So how do we build a sustainable platform for business and the environment when you have such a short-term uh, uh, tenancy structure. So that needs to be changed, and there's lots of other things that needs, uh, need to be done beyond Brexit. And you'll be fighting all the way, I'm sure. Uh, every day of the way. I've been, I've been doing this job now for 23 years. I'm sure there'll be 23 more years ahead of me yet. Uh, 23 years young at the TFA. That's Chief Executive George Dunn. Hopefully we won't be spending the next 23 years discussing Brexit, but... Who knows? Now, a report was published this week saying the UK must have a radical plan to shift to a more sustainable farming by 2030 in the face of a climate emergency. The RSA Food, Farming and Countryside Commission is behind it. It's calling for a move towards agroecological farming, which uses organic food production and more trees. Sue Pritchard is its director. She's not criticising farming. Indeed, she says many in the industry are already doing their bit. People want to make the right decisions. The work that we've done in the last two years talking to citizens and communities all around the UK tells us that people want to buy safe, healthy food and they want to support British farming and they want to support their local producers. But sometimes it's really hard to know how to do that. Labelling is really complicated. Should I buy local? Should I buy organic? Should I buy fair trade? We suggest that it's high time to have a really simple and straightforward labelling structures that people can make the sorts of choices that they that they say they want to make and we need them to make, supporting British agriculture and food that's grown closer to where they live. People sometimes say that public health is not farmers' concern. Farmers should just focus on growing food for the market. But we have not found farmers who necessarily agree with that. Farmers are also citizens, they're also members of their communities, they also care about the, the food and the environment, the food environment in which people make choices. So when we talked to farmers around the UK, we found many of them already making the sorts of changes that we're recommending. They're growing their food differently, they're using uh, agroecological principles to grow food, to grow healthy, affordable food, and they are opening up their farms to make um, the countryside more available to people who might not otherwise get a chance to experience it. You know, there are 220,000 farms in the UK. There are uh, 
there are a huge diversity of farmers who are working those farms. Some may find it a little bit more difficult, some may be locked into business models in which they've invested in good faith as a result of markets and policy signals over the last 10, 20, 30 years. So we don't think they should suffer as a result of these changes. What we know now, we did not know then. And so the policy signals that we need government to provide for farmers now have to be backed up with real investment for a, a just and a fair transition from the farming system that we have now to the farming system that we need in the future. And farmers tell us that by and large they are happy to do what is needed as long as they're properly supported to do so. That's Sue Pritchard on that report this week from the RSA Food, Farming and Countryside Commission. Now, as Sue said, many in agriculture are already working hard to make it happen. Ben Raskin is one farmer trying to create more sustainable methods. So agroforestry is where you mix up trees and crops or livestock. Historically, you'd have had a field of wheat or you might have an orchard and they'd be separate. Uh, or you might have a woodland and uh, a field of cows separate. Agroforestry is the intentional integration of those two enterprises. What's the benefit for a farmer who has 200 cows to have rows of trees in the field rather than no trees at all? So for livestock actually it's quite an easy benefit. Uh, Trees provide shade, they provide shelter. You know we're in a lovely sunny hot day here. I quite fancy being under a tree in the shelter. Animals are the same. If it's really cold where do you want to be? You don't want to be out in the rain and the cold wind, you want to be sheltered. Uh, so there's a lot of evidence that if an animal is sheltered, he's more, it's more productive. So if it's not spending energy keeping its core temperature warm, uh, it can put more energy into producing milk or into putting on weight, which is good, obviously, for productivity for the farmer. And the benefits to the land itself, perhaps if it's for crops? Well, again, for crops, so you can see behind us we've got rows of trees. The te- when, once those trees are fully established, the temperature between the rows might be three, four, five degrees higher than it would be without them. So you can imagine that will extend the season for crops, makes them more sheltered, uh, might make them grow more quickly, and it might open up possibilities for growing crops that at the moment you can't. So doing things like this can actually increase the revenue for farmers. Let's, let's put it down to that, because that's what it comes down to. Farmers are concerned about... Um, forestation and these ideas thinking well I don't want to give my land up I need every square inch for to make a profit to survive. It can increase revenue obviously it will increase costs as well Uh, so it's not a straight line it's not it's not a money tree uh, but it can provide resilience you know if you've got multiple crops in any particular year one crop might fail but not all of your crops will fail Um, but also overall the productivity can increase by 30 or 40 percent because you're farming more of the soil trees go down deeper they use more of the deep soil so effectively you're making better use of that you're making better use of sunlight uh, and water so if you've got a crop that's only in the ground for six months you're wasting sunlight and water in those other six months so you're using more of the soil the water and the light which are the resources we need to farm why is it so important to do this why not just leave it just to be a field it could be a field, uh, and it's been a field for a while, and it's you know a well-looked-after field is a great thing. Uh, but we've also got a problem. We've got a climate change problem. We need to pull carbon out of the air, and trees are the quickest, most proven way of doing that. We can start immediately pulling carbon out of the air by planting trees. And alongside that, we're getting other benefits, other public goods benefits that don't necessarily help the farmer, but are worth investing in. So we're improving soil quality. 
we're uh, improving infiltration which can help uh, mitigate against flood we're getting cleaner water trees are shown to reduce runoff from fields so we're getting cleaner water uh, so there are lots of benefits for both the farmer but also for for the wider environment and, and people. Ben Raskin with what he's doing on his farm to make it more sustainable. He's uh, far from the only one, though. Uh, the Grantham-based Woodland Trust is also working with farmers as well, encouraging more trees and helping put back historic woodland. Edwin Venick is from the Trust. He's working on one such scheme in Suffolk and Essex, though if successful, it will be extended to the rest of the country. Edwin, uh, you can explain what you're doing far better than I can. I am developing a programme in um, the Claylands of Suffolk and Essex uh, to do more work with landowners, uh, in particular farmers, uh, to encourage planting of hedgerows, to put some standards back into hedgerows and to, to look at how we can help landowners with managing woodland and planting uh, woodlands where appropriate. It's, it's very important, isn't it? I mean, you know, uh, farmers sometimes get a bit of stick for not looking after the environment or perhaps the wildlife, but of course they mm. do, and schemes like this will help that even more, won't they? It will, and we're particularly interested in trees outside of woods. So the Forestry Commission and DEFRA uh, have been very good in helping people to, to plant larger woodlands or to manage larger woodlands, but there are many farmers who have small areas of woodland or trees that are not uh, within farmland or parkland, which is not covered in those grant schemes, so we're trying to help with that. So we are subsidising those kind of schemes for landowners. Because trees, they're, they're crucial, aren't they, to the that, environment? They're crucial to our lives, really. That they are, absolutely. And um, uh, hedgerows and trees within farmland have been removed, but a lot of farmers are putting them back now because with climate change and more downpours and potential wind erosion, and this winter you could see it with snowdrift across the Avon 40, it was closed because everybody's taken the hedgerows out. Um, so um, there, there are bits which, which, which could help la- uh, landowners as well to get more productivity and less loss of, of nutrient soil uh, of the land. As Edwin Venick from the Woodland Trust. Interesting to see what they're doing there. It fits perfectly with that sustainable farming report that was published in the week. And as I say, it's an idea that I know already has been extended further with the Woodland Trust working with not just farmers and landowners, but all of us really in encouraging more tree planting. Are we doing enough though? As ever, I uh, welcome your thoughts. And if you're trying something new on your farm to help the environment, then do please get in touch. Let's get you on the programme. Email me through the website or message on social media. At Farming Show is the Twitter account. Now, what does our agronomist Sean Sparling make about that report earlier, calling for that radical rethink by 2030 on sustainable farming? Morning, Sean. Does the report make sense to you? Yes, good morning, Sean. Well, it does and it doesn't, and it is and it isn't. And what I mean by that is it's incredibly frustrating for those of us at the sharp end who do this job day in, day out, come rain, come shine. And for me as an agronomist, and I'm sure for most, if not all, farmers, it gets very, very frustrating to hear the policymakers and the people who are advising the policymakers and the people who are advising the advisors who advise the policymakers telling us in this industry how to do our job. And the tools they're suggesting we use and the methods that they're suggesting we employ are the ones that we are already using and the ones that are already in place in agriculture. You know, the whole point of what we do is to produce food for us to eat. It is a vital thing that people must never forget. We're producing food. We have to have food. And while we in agriculture are producing that food, we are very, very conscious and proactive in making sure we're protecting the soils, we're protecting the ecosystems, the wildlife, the bug life, we're protecting the birds, the watercourses, we're protecting the soils, and we're protecting the air above us. All of those things 
are already being employed in agriculture. And the whole aim of farming, as I've said, is to produce food and it's to produce safe, plentiful, affordable supplies of food. That is the point of farming. Now, if you go down the route where every farm becomes a nature reserve, every farm becomes a little wood, every farm gets rid of pesticides, every farm has all the butterflies and the bugs and the bees and grubs that you could possibly imagine, we're not going to be producing food. And there has to be a compromise. The compromise is that farmers are probably the best placed to preserve the ecosystems, the environment, the wildlife, the bird life, protect the soils, protect the water and protect the air because we've been doing it for thousands of years. We know what we're doing and we understand how that whole system interacts. So it can be frustrating to hear people who, if it wasn't for the archers, would get no fresh air at all telling us how to do the job that we are already doing. Right, rant over, Sean. My agronomy bit is getting smaller and smaller by the week as we get closer and closer to harvest. The first yield reports are coming in of all seed rape, a little bit variable, which it is always going to be this year. Anything from a tonne to the acre up to a tonne and three quarters per acre. But as these fields kick in that have been hit hard by cabbage stem flea beetle, the late frost, the variable flowering, we're only then going to see a bigger picture of how well oilseed rape has actually performed this year. And that will take time to get to that point as we progress through harvest but at the moment things could have been a lot worse than they seem to be. Winter barley first reports from the south of the county starting to come in. Anything really from seven tonnes per hectare up to nine and a half tonnes per hectare. So again we're going to see variability out there. It all depends when the rain hit, if it came soon enough, whether the crop went flat. All of those things come into play and it is very very early days as far as harvesting barley goes but at the moment the indications are it isn't as bad as it looked and the quality looks pretty good where it's coming in. Winter wheat going off really quickly now. You can see these varieties turning. A lot of it is nutrient, as I've said before, as the ear strips that nitrogen, manganese, magnesium out of the foliage. But they are turning relatively quickly now. Good big berries in a lot of this wheat. We're seeing the phenomena of fusarium. You can find graminarum, poe, you can find cumorum, nivali. All of the fusariums are out there in the field as a consequence of that wet weather which hit around the flowering period, which we've talked about before. But again, we won't know whether that is carrying dons and and mycotoxins until we start seeing the first samples going into the shed and off to be analysed. We're also seeing this phenomena where you get a white head and a white straw going all the way down to the floor. And some of that will be because the rain came just that little bit too late and the plant had shut down the tiller. You then get the main bulk of these fields of wheat, which look okay. The berries are pretty good. They're good-sized grains. They're filling well. Late cheesy right now. We're heading into the ripening period, so we now need the sunshine more than ever. But also, we've got a lot of side shoots because these plants thought we're not going to get the rain. We're going to shut down tillers. That's the white dead tillers and then it's got the rain it's got its nitrogen and it's thought oh hang on i can produce a few more tillers and it's forced out some more tillers from the side so there's going to be green in the bottom there's going to be fit and there's going to be fusarium in there's going to be some tombstone ones it's going to be an interesting harvest to get in amongst Peas and beans, little to say really. Peas are going quite quickly now. Just watch them when it comes to desiccation timing because when you go with something like uh, glyphosate or reglone, reglone you can go at 45% diquat, 
45% moisture. Glyphosate, you need to be 30% moisture. But you need to ensure that the peas in the top pods are rubbery, but will still split if they're pressed. The middle pods, the peas are quite rubbery and won't split unless you give them some serious pressure and the pods are going brown. And the bottom pods, the peas will be hard and the pods will be papery. So keep in touch with your agronomist and get it right. Get the timing right because that's the key to everything. Don't go too early with glyphosate. You need the crop to be physiologically right before you do any good. A lot of these crops will probably go on their own volition um, and you won't need to interfere. Sugar beet, we're seeing the first signs of disease. I haven't seen any more misers persecuted since I spoke to you last. Nutrient deficiencies are showing quite widely. So over the course of the next two or three weeks, the first fungicide will start to go on. Potatoes, blight's still a problem. We're seeing a bit of alternaria. There's a bit of blackleg out there. A lot of growth cracks in potatoes this year. A lot of hollows in the middle of potatoes. And that's because of the speed with which they set off once they got hold of that water. And the rapid growth is the cause of that. So apart from that, Sean, I think it's fair to say to sum up the year, it's been a bug year. We've had the cabbage stem flea beetle in the oilseed rate. We've seen wheat bulb fly worse than we've seen for a number of years. But we haven't had to spray for orange wheat blossom midge. We haven't had to spray for aphids particularly late. And they're not particularly bad in the peas and beans this year. So it's been an interesting season so far. Let's hope that the harvest goes smoothly. And let's hope as we push through more of the rape harvest, more of the barley harvest, we start to see some encouraging signs. We'll see. Indeed. Thank you, Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. On to the latest grain market news then. Jerome Fielder has our open field update this week. Good morning, Sean. Harvest is steadily getting going, with both winter barleys and oilseed rape crops being cut. Reports in South Lincolnshire on winter barley yields are positive, although it's still early days. Most oilseed rape crops have been desiccated now or swathed, with some harvested at lower than average yields. Looking at the wheat markets, markets drifted £2.50 lower on the week basis November 19 futures, with limited bullish news. There was an article this week on the BBC where the all-parliamentary group for British bioethanol says that the swift introduction of E10 fuel would help the 1 billion British biofuel industry and more support coming for an E10 policy which could support wheat prices in the north. German wheat crop was downgraded by 900,000 tonnes by the German co-ops, again supporting prices. However, as current US export sales are below the pace needed to reach the USDA's forecast, with limited demand coming forward. There is also a concern on harvest pressure, with farmers more confident on wheat yields, so do plan if you are needing to be a harvest seller. Eyes will now be focused on the USDA's crop production report on the 12th of August, as it may factor in the recent resurvey of the US corn plantings. This is the hope for many of some bullish news and a change in market direction. Barley harvest in East Anglia is in full flow and yields coming off well, although harvest pressure is hitting prices. There is a barley export programme in place and prices are generally stronger the closer you are to a port. However, export sales are not being made post the 31st of October 19 with the Brexit deadline where it currently stands. Looking at all-seed rape, the first yield signs are lower than previous years, although again a lot still to play out. Support was found from weaker currency this week and a reduced harvested area. Just to highlight a few quality issues, the first loads ending up at the crush We've had rejections from green seeds with 
the rate crush notifying the trade that anything above 4% green seeds can face a rejection. There's also been an issue with loads rejected that are smothered in flea beetle. Now for your ex-farm values. Feed wheat for old crop is currently at £135 ex-farm uh, with harvest values looking at £133 to £136. November wheat is trading at £138 to £141. Group 1 premiums on old crop are currently selling at £25 to £30. Feed barley is at harvest values, both rolled and new crops, so £118 to £121, uh, with November values between, between £122 and £125. The oilseed rate markets turned more positive at £313 to £317 for harvest, um, with November values at £323 to £327. For any inquiries or grain marketing advice, please speak to your local open field farm business manager. Thank you. Thanks, Jerome. That's Jerome Fielder from Open Field. Right, the start of the school holidays is upon us. Harvest is underway. Do we have the weather for it, though? The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, we've a hot blast coming our way. Unclear just how long it'll last, though. Certainly the first half of the week. Cloudy today, highs of 23 Celsius. Winds from the southwest around 15 to 20 miles an hour. Then it warms up Monday into Tuesday. 25 the high tomorrow, 28 by uh, Tuesday, maybe even nudging towards 30. We'll see. And then it cools down a little bit towards the end of the week. Uh, A mixture of cloud tomorrow, sunshine during the warmest day of the week on Tuesday. Overnight, quite humid, temperatures in their mid to late teens, and that wind continuing through the week, mostly from the south, southwest on Monday, southeast on Tuesday, 10 to 15 miles an hour. If there is any rain, it's likely to be towards the end of the week. That can change, though, and that's where our hourly forecasts come into play. We'll keep you fully up to date each hour. For now, though, that is the forecast. Next week, we'll get an update from the Rare Breeds Trust. The breeds doing better and therefore not quite so rare, thankfully, and those getting rarer. That's next week at the usual time. Until then, have a good week, especially with the harvest.